Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star and then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you, Kate. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, Young Adult Survivorship, Fertility, Sexuality, and Intimacy. And this workshop is the 11th Annual Cancer Survivorship Workshop, Living With, Through, and Beyond Cancer. And this is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care, the Livestrong Foundation, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, American Cancer Society, Intercultural Cancer Council, and National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. And um, we are very delighted to have all of you on the call today. There are over 438 participants on the call today, and you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, Pakistan, and Venezuela, and the United Kingdom. So you really come from all over the world. And it's a credit that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. Today's program is brought to you in part by Livestrong Foundation and Cancer Care. And we are appreciative of that support to make this program possible. I would like to turn your attention for a moment to the materials you received from Cancer Care. And those materials is information about our speakers, the topics they'll be addressing. And there also is information um, about um, all of the different organizations as resources for you um, to contact for additional help. And there is an evaluation form, and I would ask you all to take a moment at the end of today's program and complete that evaluation form. Indeed, your feedback is really uh, very helpful to us as we plan the next programs. And this topic today is one that many of you have asked for in our previous survivorship series, and so we've offered it. And I'd like to offer it as often as can I can. So if you could just uh, tell us what you want us to offer, if this is a topic you'd like us to do again or another version of this topic, please let us know. Um, and uh, I really I, that would be most helpful to us. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jennifer Ford. And Dr. Ford is a clinical psychologist, assistant member, assistant attending psychologist, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Weill Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Ford is going to address some of the unique needs of young adult cancer survivors, their sense of self-identity in relationships, dating and disclosure, and fertility options, and coping with infertility. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Ford. Thank you very much, and I'd like to thank Livestrong and Cancer Care for inviting me to speak to all of you uh, this afternoon, and thank everyone who's on the call. I think this is a very important topic for young adult cancer survivors. So I'll start by talking a little bit about the unique needs of young adult cancer survivors, because I think they are unique, and certainly uh, the needs really are different from those individuals who are diagnosed with cancer at younger or older ages. Uh, certainly, it's a distinct age group, and there are unique physical, emotional, social, and developmental needs and challenges. Um, there's a growing body of literature on this area. It still remains pretty small, and many of us around the country are very committed to making sure that body of research in increases. Um, but it really does show that there are uh, very significant biomedical and psychosocial needs that are unique that we as health professionals and as survivors need to pay attention to. One of the most commonly reported uh, 
things by young adults is isolation and alienation. Um, I think I hear this in my clinical practice and certainly see this in the research, is that many young adult survivors talk about missing out on experiences their peers are enjoying. And this includes dating, leaving home, establishing independence, going to college, getting employed, um, getting married or having children. So it really does cover a wide breadth of areas, but certainly also covers areas that uh, relate to intimacy, sexuality, and fertility. So in terms of identity and its impact on relationships, the next area I want to focus on, um, a, a diagnosis of cancer certainly may disrupt the process of identity formation and independence. I, I think this is especially the case because cancer may increase dependence on others, uh, namely uh, family and friends, and can certainly alter one's sense of self. Um, the cancer diagnosis and treatment can leave young adults with numerous physical after effects, and these include a variety of things such as fatigue, changes to body, and infertility, all of which can seriously affect one's sense of self. Um, infertility certainly may be something that's not apparent right away and can be very distressing in terms of a loss of identity, loss of identity as a parent, um, and hopes for the future and future biological children. And I'll speak to that in a little bit. Um, studies certainly suggest that young adult cancer survivors do experience challenges of dissatisfaction around sexual relations or intimacy, and this can certainly impact quality of life. Um, lastly, body image is a very important issue for survivors, and the reasons for an abnormal body image are probably multifactorial, probably due to a number of factors, including actual physical changes as well as altered perception of changes. And these may include things like alopecia or loss of hair, abnormal growth, uh, limb amputation and obesity, and certainly body image is one that we deal with both clinically and we see a lot written in the, in the research. Um, and, and these are all factors that can impact issues around dating and certainly around uh, issues of dating and disclosure, uh, body image being a big one. So I want to talk a little bit about dating and about uh, dating and disclosure. This is a topic that comes up frequently uh, for me in my practice with young adults and certainly is one that I think everybody uh, expresses lots of interest in. So, the first thing I'll say is, of course, many young adults are in relationships prior to their cancer diagnosis. So issues around dating and disclosure may not be relevant. Um, and so for those people already in a relationship prior to their diagnosis, um, the challenges are really challenges about going from being a patient back to being an intimate partner after going through treatment. But I think my colleague, Dr. Bober, is going to speak to that a little bit later in the call. Uh, for this topic, I'm going to focus a little bit on, on those who are single to prior to uh, their cancer or after their cancer, and you may find, uh, and may find themselves with questions concerning personal issues about dating, disclosure, and intimacy. Um, so certainly dating is an important part of life for many young adults, um, especially for those individuals hoping to find a partner or start a family. And dating after cancer can certainly be uh, a challenge, uh, more so maybe than for other young adults. And the literature, however, shows that it's a very mixed experience. Um, and I want to talk about it because I think sometimes we just focus on the negative, but uh, certainly it seems to indicate that sometimes dating becomes a more positive experience after cancer, and in some cases less so. So to start with the positive, I, I think um, in some cases, cancer survivors report that dating and starting new relationships is easier than before the cancer diagnosis. And I want to talk about why this is the case, because um, I think sometimes we lose sight of this. 
Uh, many young adults have reported that their experience with cancer has made them stronger and wiser, and that these qualities have made them happier in relationships. Uh, certainly, there are young adults that report that being a cancer survivor makes them feel very special, and that they are special and unique, and that they have more to offer in relationships. I, I think many young adults report they appreciate relationships and time with people more, and this gives them a different perspective, and certainly a different perspective in dating and forming more meaningful relationships. And uh, many young adults report they view dating after cancer as just one of the many challenges that cancer brings and want to face it in a positive way. So I think these are all things to keep in mind when facing dating and new relationships, but certainly it is a very mixed bag. Um, but I do want to make sure that I focus on the flip side as well, which is the challenge that may be faced um, dating after a, a cancer diagnosis and treatment. So in the literature, some young adults really do report that they feel differently about dating and starting new relationships, and that this different uh, feeling is one that may take on a more negative or less positive tone. Uh, people report they find it more complicated and challenging, and that certainly some of the issues that impact dating include feeling unattractive, worrying about physical changes after cancer, um, believing one might not be a good partner, and sometimes this is related to fertility issues, uh, worry about how others will react to finding out that you're a cancer survivor, concerns about the future, and then certainly changes uh, in one's sense of self or identity. So I want to talk about this in the context of disclosure because this is one of the questions I get most frequently is how do I tell, when do I tell, um, and how do I handle that? And, and the first thing I'll say is this is a very personal decision and does vary with the individual. Um, oftentimes the decision about when to disclose your diagnosis with a date or prospective date changes given the situation as well as the personalities involved. So for some people, telling someone about your cancer history is really it's a matter of timing and trust um, and is very much a personal choice. So I'll give you some global generalizations, but certainly want to know you to know there is no right or wrong answer. So some people feel it's important to let a person get to know you first and not just your cancer diagnosis. So in those instances, young adults may wait until things progress to the point where really keeping your cancer history a secret feels more uncomfortable than, than telling your story. And so for that, that may be several dates in, that may be, um, you know, I think there's no time frame, but really a sense of having someone get to know your personality first. I think other young adults report feeling completely different about this process. Um, they feel they're a whole new person because of their diagnosis, and they don't want to sidestep their cancer. Uh, for those individuals, they may choose to disclose very early on as part of their personal history, um, very similar to how we would report our personal history to any prospective date. And these, all these personal histories inform who we are as people. And, and really, both approaches are correct and are really particular to your own comfort level, personality, and understanding of the situation. Um, typically, the rule of thumb, although there's no right or wrong answer, is not waiting too long. And I think the reason I say that is because many young adults, when they wait too long, do worry and sometimes do come across as seeming dishonest or withholding information. Um, so I think that's something you'd want to avoid. Um, but again, it may not be something you want to disclose on a first date. Uh, certainly, this may be to someone, would be to someone you don't know, you don't trust, and may never see again. So, uh, you know, really it is about finding that right kind of timing. Um, the other thing I would say is when the process of disclosure occurs is really um, 
young adults really should have a sense of their own history, uh, about their own treatment, maybe about some fertility risks, because I think questions do come up and prospective partners do want to, uh, you know, get some answers to questions. And I think many young adults feel much more confident in addressing this if they have all the information themselves. So this is certainly something to talk to your healthcare professional and get some of your, the information. Uh, the other thing I say is too much information can be overwhelming. Cancer is only the one part of your life story and not the whole story, so really being able to tell it over time. And I always advise people to practice this out loud with a friend and get comfortable with their script. I think it just gives you a sense of confidence. Um, certainly uh, related to that uh, and related to this disclosure is a lot of questions come up about fertility and prospective dates may ask about fertility. So I want to talk a little bit about coping uh, with infertility and what, uh, what, uh, what's available. So learning that cancer treatment may affect um, or has affected fertility certainly can be very distressing. Uh, and it is one of the things that is reported most by young adults as uh, one of the most distressing uh, long-term effects or effects of their cancer and cancer treatment. There certainly are options to preserve fertility, but um, these uh, all have to be done prior to cancer treatment. Um, there are lots of medical options that can um, uh, be uh, implemented after treatment, and I believe Dr. Tonarezos is going to speak to fertility options. So I really want to focus on really coping with infertility and coping with the process of infertility. And the one thing I'll say is certainly it is very helpful to speak to a doctor, nurse, or counselor about fertility concerns. Um, oftentimes future fertility is unknown, and so one of the things is that you have to cope with the uncertainty of not knowing. Um, but there are many resources, and there are many resources for coping with fertility, even if fertility is unknown, that really do exist at the local and national and international level. And, and we can speak to that a little bit in the question and answer, but just want to draw people's attention to that. Um, one recent study uh, really showed that a majority of young adult survivors were uncertain about their fertility. However, most expressed a desire to have children and believed they had a chance to have children if they wanted them. So certainly, I think this is a topic that um, has lots of young adults' attention and um, is one that is very important. Uh, while infertility as an isolated health problem can certainly be emotionally devastating, um, for cancer survivors, especially dealing with the additional physical and emotional concerns, infertility really, sometimes people will tell me, it adds insult to injury. But I will say that while infertility is sometimes interpreted as a loss of a dream to have one's own family, there are lots of options with, for family building. And while I don't want to diminish the grief that may be felt with the loss of having one's own biological family, really want to talk about how that grieving process is sort of important to be acknowledged, um, important to be acknowledged by either family or friends or also by other survivors themselves and having peer support can be extraordinarily helpful. Um, you know, many young adults find that speaking with a counselor, joining a support group is helpful in sorting out all these questions about fertility as well as sexuality, intimacy, and relationships. And um, I'll just end by saying there are, there are um, certainly many options and many people out there to help if there are any issues with sexuality, intimacy, and fertility. But I'll let some of my colleagues speak to more of the specifics. Thank you.
Well, thank you very much, Dr. Ford. That was very informative, very comprehensive. I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Sharon Bober, and Dr. Bober is Director of Sexual Health Program, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Assistant Professor, Department of Psychiatry, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Bober is going to address dating relationships, intimacy, and sexuality, including communicating about sex, couples, partners dealing with survivorship, low desire, how to get your groove back, body image, including feeling improved sexual esteem. So lots of topics. I'm going to turn this program now over to Dr. Um, Bover. Thanks, Dr. Mester. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so lots of topics, and I'll try to um, at least talk briefly about all of them. Um, just to say that, you know, I think Dr. Ford touched on this issue of quality of life. I, I think it's so great that we're having this call because it sexuality, especially as we know for our young adult population, is such a valid and really central part of quality of life. And I say this um, whether someone is partnered or not partnered, um, because sexuality is really a sort of a fundamental human experience across the lifespan and that, um, you know, you don't need to be partnered to be a sexual being. So that, um, you know, it's really important we take some time to talk about not just the problems, but really how we can solve them. Um, and also to say that we know when young adults after cancer are struggling with sexual problems um, that are not addressed, um, those issues are often related to sort of more anxiety and more depression and more relationship stress. So it's really important that we um, kind of take the time to not just validate the problem, but uh, but really give folks tools to address them. So I think I want to just sort of step back quickly to say, you know, when I talk about sexuality, just to clarify, um, you know, I'm not just talking about intercourse, not just talking about, um, you know, something that we're necessarily doing with someone else, but it really is an experience that um, is not just an interplay of how we feel about ourselves, um, how we give and get pleasure, but also how we think, um, you know, how we feel, how we communicate. There's just a lot of different aspects of sexuality um, and that they are really all, um, it, it's sort of all of it together are sort of ingredients in that recipe. Um, also just thinking about um, the importance of communication, um, you know, whether that's with a partner or whether that's with um, a clinician in terms of reaching out and, and asking for help, um, I want to say that, you know, we live in a kind of a crazy culture because it is absolutely saturated with graphic sexual images and we're all confronted with that all the time. And yet at the same time, um, it's amazing how little we really talk about sexuality in a very honest and frank way. Um, not just with our providers if things if we need help, but also even with our partners. You know, often when um, everything is working just fine, you know, you don't have to talk about it and, and there's not much communication. But when it's, um, you know, when something is not going the way that it used to or um, you, we hit sort of a problem in some way, often we don't have a lot of experience with how to communicate about sex. So I think it's really important to, um, you know, acknowledge that often people feel anxious talking about it and it can be a little confusing at times, but that it's really important to, to say that um, we need to talk about it. And we as professionals need to be able to address um, patients and survivors around this issue. And we also need to be able to speak openly and frankly with, um, with our partners about it as well. So, um, you know, just um, speaking about this issue of dating and relationships, um, I think uh, Dr. Ford did a, just a terrific job of talking about the sort of the complexity of how you decide when and how to, to 
talk to a potential partner in the sort of the dating relationship. Um, and also just to acknowledge that even for folks that are in relationships, lots of times um, sexuality and intimacy, you know, goes through kind of ups and downs and, and changes in the context of um, significant medical treatment. And it's interesting how many times couples, whether they're younger or even older, often feel like they're really close and they talk about everything else. But, you know, people feel a little uncomfortable bringing up this topic because people want to protect each other. No one wants to make anyone feel uncomfortable. Um, sometimes partners worry that if they bring up the topic, they're going to um, make the other person either feel pressured or, or feel bad about it. And um, interestingly, that often is not how it actually goes when a couple actually starts talking. But sometimes some of those um, fears kind of get in the way of even getting started. So. I would say that um, the communication piece is really important. And so um, often in the context of, of relationships, when there are sexual changes or maybe sexual problems um, related to cancer, maybe somebody's gone through menopause or somebody's dealing with erectile dysfunction or there's just change in desire, you know, people are fatigued, people are stressed out, there's all kinds of things that can get in the way. Um, it's really okay just to say to, to, to start by saying to a partner, um, you know, I, I've just been, this has been on my mind. You know, thinking about sexuality, thinking about intimacy, and I know things are different than they used to be. Um, I'm wondering if, if it's okay that we talk about it. Um, it's okay to just throw out a question that's um, sort of vague to begin with and kind of see what you get back. And often I think couples um, or partners will hear something like that and think, wow, you know what, it's been on my mind too. Um, and it's a very sort of helpful and validating way to just kind of get that ball rolling. Um, so often, you know, when people say, well, how do you talk about it, um, you know, it's kind of weird. We, should, we didn't used to have to talk about it. I, I would just say that sometimes um, communication is really necessary to be able to sort of do some troubleshooting and sort of creative thinking together about how to um, get things back on track. So, I, you know, in terms of you know, things that are not on track. Um, you know, I know in the list of things to talk about are low desire and body image. Um, those are two very common problems that we see um, in young adults um, sort of after cancer treatment when people are sort of talking about the things that are frustrating. Um, this is low desire and, and, and changes in body image is a, you know, can be a challenge for both um, men and women. Um, I also also just sort of want to say that there are, there are specific problems, obviously, for men and women that might be different. Um, so if guys are dealing with any kind of erectile function, um, change in orgasm, arousal, um, and, and women similarly might have changes in um, vaginal changes, um, vaginal dryness, menopausal symptoms. I think um, our next speaker is going to talk about some of that in more detail. But just to say that there are also some specific kinds of differences, um, obviously, between guys and gals around sexual health and sexual function. And it's important to know um, where you can go to get some help for that and happy to talk about the resources as we go. Um, but thinking about low desire, I, I'm really glad we're going to talk about it because this is a, a a topic that is very common. It's often common for people actually who haven't gone through cancer treatment, so we know that um, this is something that affects lots of people. Um, certainly, it, I think as Dr. Ford alluded to, it's like a recipe with many ingredients. And so, you know, whether it's stress or fatigue or changes in body image, if sex hurts, um, you're going to have a desire issue. You know, I talk about that with my female patients all the time. You know, anyone who's tried to have sex and finds it as painful is going to have a desire issue. 
and we need to really figure out the mechanics of what we can do to make sure that sex does not hurt anymore. Um, so that's an important one to talk about. And when you think about how to address um, low desire, it's really important to think in um, an integrative way. So in the same way that it's typically a recipe with many ingredients, it's really important that we take an integrative approach so that it really is um, in many ways helping people figure out the sort of the mind and body and relationship piece. Um, it's very rare that when people have low desire it is just about hormones or just about the relationship. Often all of these things are working together. And in fact actually when we think about sex and optimal sex, good sex, it's really at the intersection of kind of mind and body and relationship. It's like when all that stuff is kind of on track and going in the same direction, that's when things are going well. And when there is some disruption in one of those places or all of those places, then things can sort of get off track. So in terms of thinking about low desire, um, when we think about all the kind of things we need to do to kind of harness um, kind of mind and body and relationship kind of aspects, um, we really sort of take a, a sort of a rehab approach in, in our clinic. Um, and I think the first thing to start with is to, to give people the message that you, we can um, accept some of the changes. Sometimes bodies are different. Sometimes energy level is different or menopausal status is different. So nobody's trying to invalidate some of those new normals, but to really sort of use this as a time to uh, kind of embrace the time as an opportunity to chart a new course. And I often talk with um, young adults about saying, look, you know, yes, things might be different than they used to be, but this is really our chance to take an opportunity to expand the repertoire, you know, to really shift our focus to what is pleasurable, to shift our focus from maybe sex the way you used to think about it to a broader experience of sensation and sensuality and pleasure, and to really be optimistic that there are many ways to give and receive pleasure, to feel um, both physically and emotionally intimate. Um, and the first thing to do there is to really sort of acknowledge the changes and also know that we can kind of chart a new course by expanding, I think, in many ways, how we think about sex and how we think about um, what it means to give and get pleasure. Um, just to also say that, you know, in that kind of approach with sort of whole person intervention where it's we're not just talking about mechanics or we're not just looking for a pill or a potion because we know any one of those things typically really doesn't work. It's important to know that we can harness the power of the mind. So whether that's sort of thinking about kind of mindfulness meditation, relaxation, um, thinking about sort of just how we think relates to how um, we feel, you know, so much of our experience is informed by past experience, our expectations. We need to be able to really sort of help people address all of those kind of issues. Um, and also to acknowledge that sometimes when you've had an experience that's not a great experience, people sort of have a lot of automatic kind of negative thoughts. You know, if, if you've tried having sex or starting having sex again and it doesn't go well, people find themselves thinking, geez, maybe it's never going to go well. Maybe this is what I'm kind of stuck with um, is the price that I have to pay. And that's not true. You know, um, you don't have to be sort of stuck in some of that automatic thinking. Um, and then I also think it's so critical to work um, it, with the relationship piece um, if you're in a relationship. So, you know, often again, 
partners kind of are being very tentative with each other. As Dr. Ford said, going from caregiver to lover, it's not always so obvious or easy. And sometimes partners really need some um, troubleshooting and strategies about how to help um, their survivor. So you know, I think there are lots of ways and places where we can intervene and um, give couples good strategies to move forward. Um, the last thing I just want to comment on is this issue of body image, because I do think, again, um, the impact of change in body can be really profound. And it can sometimes be very obvious, very you know, clear, something like a surgical reconstruction or scars. But sometimes it's less obvious. Sometimes it's less visible. Sometimes you know, folks are dealing with sort of loss of sensation, you know, women young women who have breast cancer and go through reconstruction and everyone says, oh, you look really great, but you know, if you can't feel anything, that's a big deal. Um, and helping women sort of remap their experience of their body so that um, you know, maybe you're paying attention and feeling um, an experience of sexuality in parts of your body that you've never thought about much before is something that might be important to do when sort of say, you know, your breasts have always been the place that you've sort of gone to as for, say, for foreplay, for example. And, you know, that might need to change. Um, so it's really important to be able to um, allow oneself to not just, again, acknowledge some of the differences, but really have some good strategies to be able to sort of feel like you're comfortable in your body again, to really feel like you can kind of remap the topography in a way so that um, you can have sensation and have pleasure and feel like you're in your body and that you don't have to kind of numb out from your body the way often uh, we do just even to get through treatment. You know, so much of getting through treatment in so many ways um, is sort of distancing from our body. And I think part of getting back into um, sexuality and, and pleasure is being able to figure out how to get back into our body without terrible anxiety and to feel comfortable um, in that place again. So, you know, uh, that's something that I think can be done certainly um, with help from a counselor. There are different places to go. It's really helpful to get some validation from other survivors who've gone through it. Um, and just, I really want to end with saying that there are really a number of wonderful resources now um, that are available for folks. And so, um, you know, it might be that you can find your way to a counselor who specializes in doing some of this. There are certainly some sexual health programs now up and running, which is great. But there's also wonderful resources um, online. So certainly through Livestrong, certainly through um, the NCI through the American Cancer Society um, have terrific resources that are written in great detail for cancer survivors. Also some of the, for young adults in particular, um, I know Livestrong has some stuff there. Um, a number of the uh, the young adult organizations like Stupid Cancer um, really have some great resources online as well. So just to say that um, there is help available. And if anyone is struggling with this kind of thing, um, it's important to know that um, we have made enormous strides in terms of being able to help address um, individuals and couples um, really get things back on track. And, um, and I'm, you know, again, happy to take some questions as we, as we end the call. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Bober. Really a, a terrific uh, presentation, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Emily Tanarosas, and uh, Dr. Tanarosas is Clinical Coordinator, Adult Long-Term Follow-Up Program, Assistant Member, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Assistant Professor, Wild Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Tanarosas is going to address medical options for assisted pregnancy, vaginal dryness, and premature menopause, hormone replacement therapy for the young woman, health maintenance needs for young survivors, including long-term follow-up care. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Dr. Tonerosis.
Thank you, Dr. Misner, and to the previous speakers. I thought I think you um, had some really terrific things to say. I just want to kind of come in here and try to offer some expertise on the medical side of things. Um, a lot has been covered. I think that has been tremendously useful. So I'm really going to try to focus on medical evaluation and treatment and not talk too much about some of the things that have already been covered. But obviously, if there's questions um, at the end, I'm happy to go back and, and go over other things. So I just wanted to start off um, the first topic I was going to cover is medical options for assisted pregnancy. And I want to say, first of all, that um, if you are undergoing active treatment, you should really um, speak with your oncologist about whether it is okay for you to try to get pregnant um, or safe for you to try to get pregnant, and that's something that really needs to be discussed with your oncologist. But assuming you've gotten the okay from your doctors and you're ready to try to get pregnant, um, there are some things that you can try to do to optimize your chances for getting pregnant and to find out whether um, you will not need assistance with getting pregnant. So the first thing is that if you're a man and um, you've had any kind of treatment that may affect your semen, including um, radiation to the area or um, certain types of chemotherapy like cyclophosphamide or iphosphamide, then the first thing you should do is to get a semen analysis. And a semen analysis does require a prescription for a doctor, but there are many labs, um, commercial available labs, where you can have it done. It doesn't have to be in a bank, per se, or in a reproductive endocrinologist office or anything like that. So if you can get a prescription from any provider and go to a bank, which you can find pretty easily um, just by Googling, um, and then you will get um, an analysis that will tell you about the motility and the viability of the sperm. I, I recommend semen analysis even for patients who have sperm bank prior or during treatment. And the reason is that if you know that you have healthy, viable sperm that you're producing without assistance, it is much easier to get pregnant um, using those sperm than to try to go back and get the sperm that are in the freezer. So um, if you have had the, the opportunity to bank your sperm, um, that's certainly a nice option to have. But I still recommend that patients get semen analysis even under those conditions. So once you've found out that um, you're, you're ready to get going and you want to try to get pregnant, um, the first thing that needs to happen is that if you're a female or, or a male, you need to come off any hormone treatment that you're taking. So that means um, if you're taking birth control pills or hormone replacement therapy, you have to stop. And then um, the woman should start timing her cycles. And what that means is you have to keep track of the very first day that you get your period. And then you have to write down every month what day that is and count the number of days between your cycles. That first day of your period is considered day one. So that is called day one by doctors. So even though uh, it's a very strange system and who knows where it came up, you know, where it came from, but that is day one. So what that means is that once you've had a few cycles and you figured out the average length of your cycle, it might be, say, 29 days is pretty typical. You can estimate that you will be ovulating 14 days from the anticipated end of your cycle. So that means if you figured out your cycle is usually 29 days, you will be ovulating approximately day 15. And that means that if you want to fertilize that egg that's coming out on day 15, that you need to have sperm there waiting for the egg. So that means one to two days prior to 
that anticipated date of ovulation you should start having sex. And we recommend that you have sex at least um, every one to two days during the week around that time that you think you're ovulating. And what's important for the male partner in this case is that um, during that first week or those first few days prior to when you're going to start trying, the male needs to abstain from sex or from masturbation. And the reason is that you will deplete your, your sperm in your semen in those first few days um, after you've had an event. So it's a good idea to abstain for the first part of the cycle, try to start having sex three to four days before the anticipated ovulation, and have sex at least every one to two days during that time. Um, if you have been doing this for at least six months and you have a history of chemotherapy or other cancer treatment, you should probably start getting evaluated. So sometimes I find when I meet with patients that they actually have not been having effective sex, even though they're having intercourse with their partner, they're not doing it in a way that will maximize their chances of getting pregnant. But if you've really been keeping track of your cycles, you've been off hormone replacement for a long time, and you've been having regular sex around the time that you anticipate ovulation, and that's, you've been doing all of those things for the last six months, then it is time um, to start thinking seriously about um, a medical evaluation. And I'll, also, I will just say as general advice to anyone who's trying to get pregnant, you should stop smoking. It's not good for the fetus should you get pregnant, and, it's, and it actually does decrease the health of the eggs and the sperm themselves. You should try to optimize your weight that means that women who are very thin and women who are overweight both have problems getting pregnant. So um, you should really try to optimize your weight. And sometimes a small amount of weight loss for an overweight patient will help promote ovulation. So it's something you should work on if that's an issue for you. And if you're a heavy drinker, that means more than three or four drinks in a sitting, you should decrease your drinking as well. And the reason for that, I mean, as we know, alcohol is not good for the fetus either. But even prior to being pregnant and when you're trying to get pregnant, there is some evidence that heavy alcohol use may impact your um, chances of getting pregnant. So in general, um, living a clean and healthy lifestyle will probably good, be good for you overall, no matter what. But um, certainly if you're trying to get pregnant, those are some important goals you should be setting for yourself. So if you've tried for six months and um, you haven't had success, then the next steps would be um, a semen analysis for the male partner and hormone levels um, for the female partner. And all of this, everything we've talked about so far, can easily be done in your general practitioner's office, and you don't need um, specialized, a specialized evaluation. So I will say that um, if that evaluation leads to something, then um, it's probably useful to consult with a specialist like a reproductive endocrinologist. And the, the typical problems that we see that survivors face include things like decreased egg production, decreased viability or robustness of the egg. So we see this um, especially with aging. Even if you're having re regular menstrual periods and you're having symptoms of PMS and other signs that you're ovulating, um, it may just be that those eggs are just not as robust um, as younger, healthier eggs. And that could be why um, you're not getting pregnant. And that's a problem actually that is, is addressable. Many of these problems are addressable. Um, there, some, for some patients, especially if you had radiation to the pelvis or um, to the abdomen, we, can, we do see problems where the uterus is not growing properly and um, not supporting the embryo. 
So um, in, in any of these cases, there are um, several medical options that patients might consider. So as I mentioned, either gaining or losing a little bit of weight, depending on um, what's appropriate for you, may be helpful. Um, the first drug we turn to for a lot of women is something called Clomid. This is a um, selective estrogen receptor modulator. That's, that means S-E-R-M, and it can help stimulate the eggs. Um, that, that is a drug that you really do need to take under the supervision of a reproductive endocrinologist, but it's a reasonable option for a lot of women. Um, if you have a specific syndrome called polycystic ovarian syndrome, or if you have some of the features that go with that syndrome, like insulin resistance, you might find that a drug called metformin can help you get pregnant. And it, it, metformin is actually a drug that's used in diabetes, but if you have a problem of, in, of being insulin resistant, having prediabetes, or having polycystic ovarian syndrome, or increase in your um, blood glucose at certain times of the day, your blood sugar, then metformin might be a good option for you, and we do see patients start to ovulate um, just by taking metformin, which is excellent. It's totally safe to take um, if you do get pregnant. Other patients sometimes need gonadotropin therapy. This means if because of a brain tumor treatment, your brain is not making the proper hormones, you can replace those hormones and stimulate the eggs to come out of the ovaries with the hormones that would um, in other patients be coming out of the brain. Um, there is also some more um, surgical interventions that can be done. And of course, um, assisted reproductive technology, which we call IVF, um, is an option for many women. And I mean, for many couples. And um, with that, you can, um, you may end up looking to use donor eggs, you can use um, donor sperm, or you can use um, gestational car carrier, especially for women who've had treatment to the uterus. So those are all, I mean, it's a long list of options, but the whole first half um, of those options really can be done just with you and your primary care physician. So you should be able to sort through a lot of these things um, with your regular primary care doctor. I just want to talk for a minute or two um, about vaginal dryness. Um, just, like, just like Dr. Bover said, you may find after treatment that sex hurts um, when you're sexually active, and there are some um, very good treatments that are available. The first thing I usually try with women is something called vaginal moisturizers. These are um, moisturizers just help relieve vaginal dryness. Um, you use them not at the time you're having sex, but um, a few times a week, and they look like a little suppository that you put in the vagina at night before you go to bed. The most common, the one we use most commonly is called Replens, so you can ask your doctor about that if it might be an option for you. Um, vaginal lubricants are what you use when you're having sex to make intercourse more comfortable and to prevent injury to the vagina. Um, you should use lubricants, you put them in like immediately before you're going to have intercourse and examples are Surgilube or KY Jelly or Astroglide. Um, you can find most of those at the drugstore or online if you have trouble. Um, I will say you should not use petroleum jelly or Vaseline um, and you should not use lubricants that make the skin feel warm, have colors, flavors, or kill bacteria because they can irritate your vagina, especially um, if you've been through cancer treatment. Um, for some women, you may need to talk to your doctor about something called a vaginal dilator that can help stretch your vagina. It's a very simple thing to use, and it can really um, help minimize narrowing and shortening of the vagina and make intercourse much more comfortable and enjoyable. And then finally, um, I come to the third topic, which is vaginal, or I'm sorry, hormone replacement, which can be either vaginal or oral or transdermal. 
Um, so hormone replacement for women who have gone through menopause as a result of cancer treatment can also improve um, pleasure during sex. So that is an option um, if that's something that you're experiencing, either low estrogen levels or um, you've gone through early menopause because of your treatment. Okay, I will stop there because I think um, I spent a long time talking about medical options for um, pregnancy, but if you have further questions about hormone replacement therapy or specifics about the different things that are available, um, I'm happy to take questions later. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much. It's terrific. Thank you very much. Um, and I think there will definitely be questions. Um, and our next speaker is uh, Ms. Carly Mesovitz. And um, Carly is an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. And she is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial support services for young adult survivors and their loved ones and how support groups help young adult survivors. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Carly. Thanks so much, Carolyn. It's really a pleasure to be part of such an important discussion today. Um, and creating a support network after cancer treatment ends can be especially helpful since this is often a time filled with many adjustments and changes that can leave a person and their loved ones feeling completely overwhelmed. Cancer care can be a part of that support network and there are a lot of ways that we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to people with cancer, post-treatment survivors, caregivers, and the bereaved. Cancer Care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education, practical help, as well as some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by Master's Level Oncology Social Workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects the person who is diagnosed, as well as his or her family and friends. We are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, the physical, and financial challenges that arise after a cancer diagnosis, and we can continue to provide many of those services even after treatment ends. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face support groups in our local offices in the New York area, as well as telephone and online groups. Our supportive services are sensitive to the way a diagnosis of cancer is different when you're young. Connecting with others in a support group is really a unique opportunity. Sharing one's experience with others in a similar situation can offer a sense of normalization, comfort, and camaraderie, and this can really be quite a powerful experience. Making these connections can help lessen the feelings of isolation that many people experience once treatment ends. Cancer Care is actually currently recruiting for a face-to-face -face support group in our New York City office for young adults in their 20s and 30s who've recently completed cancer treatment. And we also have a number of other support groups online and over the phone for survivors and their loved ones. So if you're interested in participating in a group or in taking advantage of any of our other services, please call Cancer Care's toll-free hope line at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. So as you've all heard from today's discussion, there's a lot to think about, and there are also many services out there to help cancer survivors get access to the support and the information that they really need. So while we might not be able to help resolve all of the problems that you're facing each day, a cancer care social worker can be a source of support, guidance, and insight to help you navigate the cancer and survivorship-related concerns that are coming up for you. Many people find this to be both a reassuring and comforting service that can help you feel less alone. So again, please contact us at 1-800-813-HOPE or 4673 
or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. I thank you all for your time and for the opportunity to talk with you today. Oh, thanks, thanks so much, Carly. That was wonderful. And, uh, and now we have time for questions. We have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Kay to explain to all of you how to queue up and ask questions, and we'll bring all of our speakers on board, and let's see how many questions we can take. If we don't get to your question, simply call Cancer Care at the end of the call at 1-800-813-4673. And I'll repeat that number later on as well. Um, Kate? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then the number one key on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. And again, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchtone telephone. We have a question from one of our online participants. Actually, it's a comment um, uh, saying that omega-7 has significantly cured my vaginal dryness and cervical fluid production post-chemo and auto-stem cell transplant. So I'm going to ask Dr. Tenorosos and Dr. Bober also to address this, um, um, this question, this comment, actually. Dr. Tenorosos, do you want to go first? Sure. So, yeah, so I have not heard of that treatment. I wonder if it's um, being inserted into the vagina or if it's something she's taking orally, but um, I, w I would defer to Dr. Bober on it. I have not heard of people using that. Um, yeah, same. But you know, it's inter it's interesting, and it, I mean, mm -hmm. if, it's, if it's working, that makes sense. I mean, I don't know any reason why it would be contraindicated. So that's interesting. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you, and um, excellent. Uh, we have another uh, question. Um, from Although I will just sorry, so yes. I'm just going to say that you know, it is interesting. Lots of women. Um, use a variety of things to help moisturize the vagina. So, you know, we certainly know um, lots of women who use, like, pure vitamin E oil, um, pure coconut oil. You know, there are other options um, besides uh, sort of the, um, the, you know, the vaginal moisturizers that are made um, that you buy at the pharmacy. And I have another question for Dr. Tenrosos. Um I've seen increased evidence that water-based lubricants, um, such as KY or astroglide, can actually cause increased dryness and micro-tearing during intercourse. It must be frequently reapplied. Can you please speak to the benefits of silicone-based lubricants for intercourse? Dr. Tonrosos? Gosh, so that is a that is a very detailed question. I would say, for the most part, I defer to my patients as to you know what they prefer. Um, if you're trying to get pregnant, you have to be a little more careful in the um, lubricants that you're choosing. But I'm not aware that there's a difference um, other than with preference in terms of the side effects from the treatment. Um, this is Dr. Bober. Um, I certainly think that the silicon-based lubricants are give people much more glide for longer. So I think the issue with the water-based lubricants is that if you are um, applying them and you, you know they they can they don't last as long. So if you apply a little bit of water-based lubricant and then you notice that things are getting dry and you keep going, it's going to be a problem. Whereas the silicon, you certainly they certainly are more effective in terms of the slickness, right, the sort of the topical slickness. Um, I think the, you know, there's also sort of personal preference to that, and also there are something, you know, some people can, it might find them irritating or um, certainly silicon can stain. Um, but, you know, mainly I think the issue here is that if you're using a water-based lubricant um, and it, it's not essentially giving you enough slickness over time, you have to frequently reapply, and that is important. And actually the uh, previous uh Com, e online person came back and said it oral supplement twice daily omega seven. So oh, interesting. That's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. 
We have a wonderful uh, participants on the call as well today. Um, also, a question, another question from one of our um, online uh, participants, and um, and the question is. Um, <coughs> What advice can you provide a parent caregiving for their young adult daughter that is two-time cancer survivor? Um, so, um, Dr. Ford, would you like to address that? Sure. Uh, it's a pretty broad question. So uh, we'll see what I can do, and maybe they'll come back with some specifics. I mean, I think for a, for a parent, uh, when, you know, when speaking to your young adult um, daughter, I mean, I think there's a couple take-home messages. I mean, one is that uh, she, will, she will find somebody, she will date, she will, you know, find her sense of self, and that if she feels lost um, in any of these regards or is feeling like um, she's extraordinarily different from her peers and, and really needs some guidance, that there is certainly a lot of help out there. And um, I think Dr. Bober spoke to this earlier, but certainly there's online support as well as there is face-to-face. -face. In terms of fertility, one of the things that I tell uh, parents, because a lot of times the message about infertility has been delivered to the parents, um, depending on how old um, how old uh, her daughter was at the time of diagnosis and treatment. Um, you know, I say that's an ongoing discussion and certainly an ongoing conversation and one that you want to make sure that your daughter really fully understands and understands that there are options. Again, I think sometimes the information is delivered, but really without a sense of understanding that there are lots of options and lots of ways um, to, to cope with infertility or to deal with any of these issues she may be facing. Um, in terms of her sense of self, this is probably the one that I think is the hardest um, to help guide your child through because it is so broad and existential and um, very much a personal journey in discovering who she is. But I would say that, that, again, that can be really part of a family discussion and part of a, if there really are difficulties, part of a discussion about where she can seek extra help, again, from a counselor in person or online, um, to really have a sense that she is not alone. And one of the biggest things I see with young adults is really this sense of feeling very alone. And while they have lots of support from their family, that their family really um, didn't experience the diagnosis in the way that they did. And so to connect with other young people and other young survivors can have a very powerful and meaningful impact. Excellent. Thank you very much. And a question for Dr. Bober. Um, does it matter who initiates the conversation about changes in desire, sexuality, um, survivor versus partner, in terms of increased perceived pressure or awkwardness in relationships? Um, yeah, no, I don't think it matters. I mean, I think the, the issue there is really what the dynamic is with the couple, you know, and I think that it's really okay for a partner, um, if they're worried about this issue of pressure or perception of pressure, to start the conversation by saying, I'm bringing this up because it's been on my mind, but I really want to make it clear, this is, there's no pressure around this. You know, there is really no, I'm not bringing it up with the intention to ask for anything as much as just to be able to talk about our feelings. Um, I also think that, um, you know, sometimes this idea of, of pressure, you know, people sort of are worried that the other pressure is going to, that the survivor might feel pressured when in fact the survivor might feel relieved, you know, or vice versa. Um, so I think it's very much okay for I don't either partner to, to bring up the conversation. And this sort of brings me to the other point, which is that lots of times I will talk to a couple and say, listen, right now maybe the thing to do is to take sex off the table. 
you know, you're not having sex right now anyway. Um, it's been a while. It feels like it's sort of a tough topic. Maybe the thing to do is to take some time to spend whether it's days or weeks, really just reconnecting with sort of physical intimacy that's not focused on sex, that's focused on just, you know, physical proximity and pleasure and non-genital touch, sens- sensual touch that allows you to kind of um, kind of get your get your toes in the water. And I really sort of often talk about it like exercise. You know, you might have been a marathon runner before, but if you've had an injury and you haven't run in, you know, months or years, you can't just run a marathon. You can't even go run a 10K. You might need to just get on the treadmill and walk for a while. So I think it's a comparable metaphor in terms of getting back on track with sex that, you know, talking about it and talking about moving towards some non-genital touch and non-sexual touch but physical proximity is a really um, nice way to start without anyone feeling pressure. Thank you very much. Thanks. And um, the next question is, um, for patients that know that they are infertile following treatment, how do you suggest helping them to cope with this fact? Also, I am often, it's a two-part question, also I am often frustrated when patients are told that they can explore the option of gestational surrogate or other expensive options that are not realistic yeah. for most people. Right. Um, so, Dr. Tenorosos, would you Yes, um, that's, a, and that's a very good point. So, first of all, um, I think that the cost involved is prohibitive for a lot of patients. And I am very, um, very cautious, you know, with how I introduce these topics with my own patients. I will say, you know, we, in an effort to be comprehensive, I want to make sure to include those options for patients. But the, from a realistic standpoint, you know, from for the vast majority of people in the United States, the expenses are prohibitive. I mean, a gestational carrier is probably $100,000 or more, plus medical, meaning you pay all of her medical expenses. So um, it's really not a a reasonable choice for most patients. But, um, you know, I I include it because I want people to be aware at least it's out there. I mean, I will say that um, this this is a very challenging and difficult topic for a lot of people. And really every patient every every family, every person needs to go through this journey on their own. And we really try, I really try to um, help in any way I can and offer support where I can, but it's, it's something that um, is going to be different for, for each individual. Thank you. Excellent. Um, and um, another question, um, are there any organizations that offer financial assistance for patients wanting to participate in sperm banking? Um, Hmm. uh, Carly, are you able to address that? Um, Yeah, so there actually are a lot of organizations that are out there that both provide information and financial assistance for um, things like fertility preservation. Um, You know, that might vary based on someone's, their specific situation, how far post-treatment they are. So a lot of organizations have those kind of guidelines in terms of uh, getting financial assistance. But I would recommend somebody can call us at Cancer Care, and we can certainly learn a little bit more about their specific situation and direct them in any way possible to those kind of resources. But, yes, they do exist. Excellent. Okay, thank you. So there are resources out there. Call us. Um, That's excellent. Um, And um, another question from one of our online Participants, my heavy doses of chemo have wrecked havoc on my sex drive. It has put a serious strain on my marriage. What can we do so? What, what can we do so prevent my cancer from driving my partner and I apart? Um, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. F- uh, Ford and Dr. Bober if you could address that. Uh, sure. So uh, you know, I think um, you know, I really empathize with. 
the situation that you've found yourself in. It certainly is a very difficult one, and we know that um, you know having an altered uh, you know sexual life at home can really put an incredible strain on one's marriage. Um, I think the couple things that, that I would say are certainly open communication being one of the most important things that a lot of times the reason why there's such an incredible strain in the relationship is because we're not talking about the things that are causing the strain and, and it actually only just contributes to making things feel worse. So, so I would say just keeping that dialogue open and having real open communication. The other is there are lots of resources for couples counseling and for a lot of couples they find that um, just sitting with each other at home and talking about something very difficult is, is not really getting them to a place of resolution or of progress, and that really having a third party help walk you through, um, as Sharon says, really maybe even starting with getting on the treadmill and walking rather than the marathon, starting sort of slowly um, helping ease that communication uh, dialogue can be extraordinarily helpful. So those are the, the first things that sort of come to mind for me. Yeah, I mean, I also, I guess I would just, you know, he, um, I think the, the question sort of also um, got at the issue, I think, about fatigue. Is that right, Dr. Messner, or something? Yes. And, um, yes. and, you know, I think that this is where, you know, you can sort of see the kind of the multi-factors come together, sort of mind and body and relationship. And, you know, sometimes it's really helpful to sort of do some troubleshooting around some of those physical factors. So, um, you know, yes, energy level might not be the same as it used to be, but really sort of then thinking about when does one have more energy? You know, are there better times of day or week? Is a way to, you know, create time or space that, um, you know, works better than it used to, you know, just assuming Saturday night at 11 doesn't, might not work anymore. I don't know if that, what the case is per, for this particular person, but I think it is also important to be able to look in addition to some of the very specific um, physical factors and physical changes and to see if there's some way to, um, to troubleshoot some of that as well. And one last question, Dr. Boker. Um, are patients able to receive integrative services, psychosocial and medical services you mentioned in one location at your institution or other institutions as well? Um, they are. They are. I mean, we certainly um, have a very robust survivorship program at the Dana-Farber, as I know um, several other of the institutions do as well. Um, and in our um, sexual health program, people have the opportunity to meet not only with a psychologist, but, you know, with either gynecologist, urologist, endocrinologist. We sort of work as a team. Um, and we also have other um, sort of psychosocial services um, with uh, counselors um, available as well. And there are other model um, hospitals like that throughout the country, is that correct? I'm sorry? There are other other hospitals throughout the country that offer such programs, such as different regions of the country. And yeah, I mean, I think you know, at least very specifically around sexuality, I think the good news is that this is getting a lot more attention than it used to. I think that um, we are literally year by year seeing um, a growth in interest in actual services available for cancer patients and survivors specifically around um, sexual health that are sort of embedded in survivorship care. Um, and I think that's the case with fertility as well. So, I mean, I'm hopeful that there, um, that the, the, the resources we have now will only continue to grow. I think they will. Um, and I also think that there are, again, it's, you know, lots of good stuff online as well for folks that don't have easy access um, to um, this kind of hospital-based service. 
I want to thank all of our speakers. You've really been extraordinary. I want to thank all of you who have actually asked such wonderful questions online, and all of you who have been listening as well. This is a one-hour workshop, and that in planning this, we know that you have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour. Most important message to take away from today is that, of course, there are many, many resources to help you with the issues that you're around fertility, sexuality, and intimacy. We want you to take advantage of those as young adults. Um, and I do want to encourage all of you to take advantage of calling Cancer Care Services at 1-800-813-4673. We really don't want you to think that you, there is nothing out there for you. We want you to know that there are really quite an array of services and, and resources for you, and uh, many of them are free and, and can be of great support to you. So I want to thank you all for participating today. I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may disconnect. Have a wonderful day.